You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, we close out our sermon series, Just a Phase, with a message from Senior Minister Adam Hale on the final phase in childhood, high school. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. Well, good morning. It's just a phase. How many times have we heard that? How many times have we said that when we're trying to justify in our minds the behavior of a child when they've done something wrong or something that doesn't make sense to us or something that infuriates us? It's just a phase. That's what we say, right? We say it because we expect something to happen. We expect them to grow out of that phase. And here's the truth. They do. They will grow out of each phase. And as we've seen in this series, there are, are, are some very distinct characteristics of each phase, whether it be the, in the toddler preschool phase where oftentimes the main objective is just to stop the crying, or in the elementary phase where every kid begins to discover that they are a little different than everyone else, or maybe it's the middle school phase where the dramas and the smells never change. They will grow out of those phases because it's just a phase. So don't miss it. We've reached the end of our journey through uh, the four phases that take place in the life of a child. And in terms of child development, over the last three weeks, we have covered 731 weeks in the life of a child. Now remember that there are only 940 weeks in a child's life from the time they are born until the time that they turn 18. And through these past three weeks, we have talked about the first 731 of them. When a student enters into the ninth grade, they have 209 weeks left in their 940 countdown. So if you can visualize those jars that we handed out a couple of weeks ago on baby day that were full, now they're about this full. There are 209 weeks left. In ninth grade, it's the phase when friendships shift and grades count and, and interests change so often that your teenager has to explain to you, this is me now. Any of you ever heard your teenager say that, Mom, you just don't understand. This is who I am now. We hear that a lot at this phase of life. You might notice that former best friends, friends that they grew up with in elementary school, best friends that they had in middle school, have seemed seemed to fade away a little bit. And there are new friends that are appearing. The average high school has 750 teenagers in it. That means that there are 750 teens with 250 dating couples and more than 50 options for extracurricular activities. With so many opportunities to connect, it's no wonder that teenagers in this phase abandon the general quest for popularity and search for acceptance in more specialized groups. A teenager might find their place in the shop class or or on the academic team or in drama club or on the baseball field or in FFA or beta or a hundred other different groups the point is that is that at this specific time acceptance is more important than popularity in middle school it's all about being popular it's the quest to be with the popular group but in high school it shifts from being popular to being accepted these 52 weeks also bring a new academic reality the demand for personal responsibility has now increased and teens are held to more rigorous standards For some, this is when grades uh, begin to count towards admissions, toward that that elusive and and exclusive college of their dreams. Even if college isn't in the cards for for everyone, grades still count toward a high school diploma. 
And sometimes towards extra privileges at home. I know for me, when I was growing up, my driving privileges were always based on what my grades were. If my grades weren't very good, neither were my driving privileges. And I suspect that that's how it is for many of our teenagers today as well. But regardless of whether they're, they're going to college or they're not going to college, for every ninth grader, grades count. Ninth grade year is also the year where of, of identifying talents and abilities. Freshmen, they will gravitate to where they are most accepted. And by the end of this year, your teenager will have a more uh, visible sense uh, and stable sense of who they are. And your teenager will, will likely be a little frustrated that it's taken you this long, even though they just figured it out, it's taken you this long for, them, for you to know who they've been, to figure out who they are. So listen carefully and pay attention and stalk them openly. Parents, make no bones about that. Stalk your kids openly. Know what they're doing and who they're with and where they're gaining this acceptance from. Because the greatest thing that you can do in this phase is to know them and know where they are finding acceptance. Perhaps nothing will affect the trajectory of the next four years more than that. Where they are gaining acceptance. And then they move into 10th grade and they have only 157 weeks remaining in their countdown. And this is the phase where everyone else can and nobody else has to and your very resolute teen will push you to answer the question, why not? This phase marks a year of independence. Uh, many teens during their sophomore year have the milestone birthday that is the Sweet 16. Sweet 16 means sweet freedom for many of our teenagers and it means whether they, they have a, a driver's license or they have friends who have a driver's license, it means freedom from authority that has once uh, in their minds kind of held them down. Now just how much freedom they should have or how much freedom their peers have, you, you will never really know. And if you ask them though, no other adult on the planet limits their activities as much as you do. Right? How many parents you, you've had to say, but I'm not their mom. You can't do this. Well, why can't I, mom? So-and-so's friend is going there. They get to go there. They get to do this. They get to stay out till 1230 or 1 o'clock or whatever. Why can't I? And oftentimes the answer is, because I'm not their parent. I remember many Friday night conversations that began with, Adam, you're not going to this place. Or, Adam, you're not hanging out with that person. And my, my was, why not, Mom? Because I'm not their parent. I'm not their mother. That conversation sound familiar to any of you all? I thought it might. Along with this quest for newfound freedom, though, the sophomore year is a blend of fresh skepticism and new discoveries. And with that newfound freedom comes greater life experience. And whatever a 10th grader has believed in theory has now been tested. That really life-shattering bad thing that you warned them about? Well, they know someone who has survived it. The standards that you held up for them in the past? Well, they realize that you haven't always lived by them. So get ready for them to challenge the process. Because the days of because I said so are now far behind you. All the things that you have once told them about, they have experienced it for the most part, or they know someone that has. And so the days of, well, I'm the dad, and, and this is how it's going to be because I said so, those days are gone. That's one of the great things that I love right now at this phase of life that my kids are in is because that phase, that still works. I get to still say to Noah and Eli, because I'm your dad, and I make the rules, and what I say goes. But at this phase... They've got a little bit more independence now, a little more freedom. 
And it's now we have to move into the phase, don't just say, do as I say, but do as I do. And a sophomore, though, they still need boundaries. But unless those boundaries make, make sense in light of their personal and changing beliefs, they won't stay within them. You'll, but, but honestly, you're, you're the same way. Unlike you, though, a 10th grader doesn't have your past experience or your future orientation. So when you debate, and I use that phrase, debate loosely, when you debate loudly, boundaries with a sophomore, remember to stay in the present. They aren't challenging what you both want for them 10 years from now. They just need you to understand what they need right now. And another 52 weeks pass. And we have 104 gems left in the jar. And they get to the 11th grade. And this is the phase where there's less drama. Thank you, Jesus. There is less drama. But there's more stress. And your very busy teenager will answer all of your questions with, just trust me. Just trust me, Mom. Just trust me, Dad. I've got this. Juniors are more ready to become who they really are than ever before. The rapid influx of hormones have now regulated. The fight for, for peer acceptance has subsided. And the intensity of conflict over independence... Well, they've worn you down. And so you, you just have kind of given in to that. But this confidence, though, it's enough to let you relax emotionally and, and to allow yourself to be amazed at all they can accomplish. And that word accomplish, it may be the best word to describe the activities in this phase. Because they really do accomplish a lot. Many begin an after-school job or they begin focusing on college resumes by by adding a growing number of AP courses, or they start an internship, or they, they volunteer at, at one of the local shelters or, or one of the local places where they can get some community service. They, they sign up for extracurricular leadership roles, and then there's the, the SAT and the ACT prep, and then there's the actual SAT and ACT test. And for a select few, this is when recruitment for college sports begins. So whether your teen is caught up in the race to win or simply trying to survive, the junior year is easily the year that has the highest amount of pressure. And with all that's happening, and there's a lot happening in this, in this phase, don't be surprised if it's hard to keep up with. You'll be asking questions like, where are you going? Who are you going with? When will you be back? How long have you been dating? I didn't even know you were dating. And your relationship will begin to feel a little one-sided. And that's okay. They don't expect you to keep up with everything that's going on. What they really want is for you to trust them. And after all, they will be out of, the, out of the house soon, and you'll have to trust them. So let this be a practice here for both of you. Help them prove the ways that they can be trusted. And, and choose your battles wisely, parents. One of the greatest, things that I've, I've, greatest pieces of advice I've been told is pick which hill you're going to die on. Choose your battles wisely and parent them in the areas that seem to be the most challenge, challenging them for them personally. Because once this year begins, within a few short weeks, your time remaining will be in double digits. And once it reaches double digits, the last phase begins with only 52 weeks left. Twelfth grade. The phase when your emerging adult will pull away and get closer and then pull away and get closer. And they do things for the last time. And you both start asking the question, what's next? If 16 is sweet, then 18 is legal. The kids are no longer a child. And technically speaking, they, they are fully responsible for their own actions and decisions. Although we know that you will still have to pick up the pieces from time to time. You may 
feel them begin to pull away as they drive off to a first job, as they deposit a paycheck, as they register to vote, or maybe even drop out of the youth ministry programs. The countdown clock is counting down to the end. And there may seem to be a sense of urgency to these last 52 weeks as seniors take on more responsibility. They, they will also lean in relationally, though, in a different way. Especially late in the year, they discover that they need adults more in their life than they thought. And all of a sudden, decisions that they make have very high stakes. And then there's nothing like those having those last time moments to, to bring about a little uh, sentiment. Some of you experienced this back in August when your high school seniors got ready for their last first day of school. Some of you will experience it here in just a couple of days when they get ready for their last, last day of school. And during this phase, though, the greatest question of the phase for everyone is what's next? In fact, it can drive you both a little crazy uh, at times. And at times it can feel like you're walking on one of those moving sidewalks that they have at the airport. But as you're walking on that moving sidewalk, you're coming to the end of it and there's no defined floor for you to move out onto. That's kind of what it feels like. Just remember to focus on the next few months, not the next rest of our life. They may be legally adults, but they aren't adults. We, we know this. Your job hasn't ended. Even the most accomplished seniors will take a few years and, and maybe some counseling to figure this whole adult thing out. And then we get to the bottom of the jar. The, jar, the, the bottom of the jar that has the polished stone, that one, one remaining jar, a uh, gem. And this is the phase when your emerging adult pulls away more and then needs you again. And they do things for the first time. And you both keep asking this question, what now? This is the year that you've imagined for 18 years. But you may be surprised at how loud the emptiness sounds when someone who has been so familiar in your life suddenly disappears. Of course, you may also rediscover a little personal freedom of your own. What do you mean there's no more games to attend? There's no more forms to sign? There's no forgotten books to take to school at the last minute? And how on earth did the milk actually last to the expiration date? It's amazing how those things happen once kids move out. But they may cost you more even though you see them less. Even if they aren't physically present, their presence still may be felt, especially on your checkbook. Whether you're helping fund their continued education or you're making a deposit for their first apartment, there's a good chance you haven't stopped paying for most of their expenses. They may also cost you some unpredictable time as well. You may never know when they, they might call and look for advice or affirmation or, or maybe just a reminder of home. I know when I first moved away, one of the things that I would often do was would go home to the farm and, and just to get on the four-wheeler and drive on the, on the trails that we had was just not because I'm, I necessarily missed people or, or I needed something, but I just needed that little reminder of what home was like. So when they call and ask for advice, give it. The truth is, though, is that they will amaze you at what they can do on their own. But there's still a lot left to figure out. Where will they live? Will they get married? What kind of, uh, of work will ultimately bring fulfillment in their life? They will want your advice, but only in small doses. And only when they ask for it. And so this is a season to re-engage your child in a new way. Not so much as a parent, but more as a peer as you transition your relationship for the future. Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, he's, verses 5-7, through 7, it's the same passage of scripture we've been using all month. 
He wrote, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. Excuse me. When you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. When Moses said this, he said it with an understanding that children change, that children transition into different phases of life, that children become preteens and then teenagers and finally adults. He could have said it this way. He might have said, embrace them, engage them, affirm them, and mobilize them. In each phase that we've talked about, we've talked about there's, there's a great um, opportunity for us to leverage. And in each phase, we've talked about that. And in the preschool toddler phase, we talked about the greatest need that they have is to, to be embraced by a caring and consistent adult. The greatest need that elementary students need that they have is to be engaged by adults who will help them discover their story where their story intersects with God's story. In middle school, when they wonder who cares and they begin to question who they are, they need to be affirmed in that, that they are children of the Most High God, even if they don't smell like it. And then in this last phase, with some newfound freedom, we should be mobilizing their potential. Statistics will show that the majority of high school students upon graduation will walk away from the church. In fact, I think it's like 75%. So like three out of every four high school graduates walk away from the church. And, and about 60% of those students will come back to the church later on in life once they have their own kids and their own family. But that still leaves a large gap of kids who were raised in the church who, who were, you know, honored at graduate Sunday at their local church, and then when they went to college, they walked away from their faith. And there are a lot of reasons why, but I want to suggest that one reason is because we have failed as a faith community to mobilize their potential. Think about this. From the time they are born until they graduate, we teach them about how important the church is. And we should. The church is important. In fact, there's no other organization, no other uh, entity that I think is as important as the church. We should teach them that. And we teach them to put others before themselves. And we should teach them that. That's one of the, the foundational principles of our faith, that others come before self. But when do we ever let them practice that? In many areas where they have potential to serve, we stifle them because there's this unspoken idea that in order to serve the church, they need to, to have X, Y, and Z requirements fulfilled. We say things like, well, they're the future of the church. They can, they can serve when they get older. No. If that's our mentality, we're getting it wrong. They're not the future of the church. They are part of the church now. So we've got to mobilize them to serve now. We say things like, they need to be in worship, listening to the sermon so they can grow. And, and that's true. But if never given an opportunity to, to put into practice what they learn, it becomes just like math class to them. It's stuff that they learned for a test and then they never used. You know, I'm still waiting to use the Pythagorean theorem that I was told was so vital for me to know for my everyday life. You know, in my adult life, I have never once used that in any natural daily activity. And now, honestly, if you, if you told me to write it down or to try and use it to solve it, I couldn't do it. I absolutely could not do it. I don't even know. I, there's X and Y equals Z. There's something about that. But I'm not even sure that's right. I've never used it. You know why? I learned it for a test, and then I put it in the compartment of my brain of, of useless stuff that I never use. 
And far too many of our students are doing the same thing with things that they learn in church. It's stuff that they learned, and then it goes in that same compartment because they never got an opportunity to use it. They never got an opportunity to practice what they had been taught. Far too many of our students, for what ha- they, we teach our students, and far too much of what we teach our students ends up in that same compartment. And that's a fundamental mistake of parents and of ministry leaders and of the church as a whole. We must begin to mobilize them to serve so that they see that they play a role in God's kingdom and that they don't walk away from the church having missed out, missed out on how God can use them and seeing what God can do through them. If you never see what God can do through you, you will eventually give up on God. So we have to mobilize our students so that they see that not only can God work through them, that God is using them now, not when they're adults later in life, not when they have so much life experience, but that they are part of the church now. So parents, encourage your students to serve in some area, to be involved in something that benefits someone besides themselves. Make them honor the commitments that they make. Ministry leaders, church leaders, Look for young people who, can encourage, who you can encourage to be involved in ministry. And yes, sometimes it will take more effort on our part to get them to understand what we want them to accomplish. We might even have to get our hands dirty and serve alongside of them. Hmm. What a noble thought that is, though, that we would mentor someone and show them what service looks like, that we would, we would teach them, and not just teach them, but work alongside them. And hey, if nothing else, send a teenager full of hormones to serve in the nursery or the toddler room on a day where kids are screaming and diapers are getting full and blocks are getting thrown. I promise you, if if we do that, we'll never have to convince them of the need uh, for abstinence until marriage. I promise you that. But churches who mobilize the, the potential of high school students have a smaller percentage of students who walk away from their faith. When they leave high school, Think about that. Think about what the writer in Proverbs said in Proverbs 22, 6, when he said, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. You know, when you train for something, you train for it because you expect at some point you're going to do it. When surgeons go through school and they train, they train so with the expectation that they're going to perform surgery at some point. And at a certain point in their education, they begin joining more advanced surgeons in the operating room. And as they they progress, they get to do a little more and a little more and a little more. But we would never allow a surgeon to operate on, on on us or on anybody for that matter if they had never actually been in the operating room. If they didn't, if the only experience they ever had was classroom lecture, we wouldn't let them come anywhere near us. When people train for, for marathons, they, do, they usually do a couple of things. First, they, they set up a schedule, a, a running schedule. And then they begin to look at dietary plans. And then they start a weightlifting program. And if that's all they ever did to, to uh, train for a marathon, they'd never complete one. They would fail every time. You know why? Because at some point, you actually have to go running. We would consider anyone who showed up to run a marathon that hadn't done any running prior to an event, we'd consider them an absolute idiot. Maybe even if they had done some training, we still might consider them that. But we would tell them, don't run. Do not run 26.2 miles. You will die. This is what will happen. If you run this marathon, you will die. Here's the thing. Our students will spiritually die if we don't train them on how to serve others. And part of that training is to mobilize their potential and actually let them serve. It's what Jesus did. Think about it. 
When he called the twelve disciples, he spent time with them and he showed them what to do, even before his death. And he gave them opportunities to go out and to do what he had been teaching them. And oftentimes they failed. Many times they would go out and they would fail. They go out to cast some demons out and they come back and they say, Jesus, it didn't work. And Jesus would say, well, this, these kind of demons you have to do, you have to pray these out. And then they'd go and they'd say, they'd go out and they'd come back and they'd say, Jesus, they didn't accept us. And he would say, well, you have to dust, those that don't accept you, you have to dust the, uh, shake the dust off of your feet and move on. They had somebody to come back to, but Jesus was giving them an opportunity to go out and to practice what they had been taught. Think about what the future of the church would be like had Jesus returned to heaven and not given the disciples a chance to go out and practice what they had been taught before he went to heaven. They would have given up because the disciples would have gone out and they would have failed and they'd have had no one to come back to. And they would have quit. They'd have said, it's too tough. We can't do this. So let's give our students right now an environment where if they fail, it's a safe place to fail. It's a place where that when they fail, because it's not a matter of if they fail, it's a matter of when they fail. That instead of facing condemnation, they receive compassion. Instead of judgment, they get grace. Because here's what I know to be true about every high school student. That every high school student has the potential to be a prodigal. Every high school student has the potential to be a prodigal. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He thought he knew it all. He went out on his own and he spent all of daddy's money and he lived, he lived wild and lavish lifestyles and he failed. He had a number of moral failures along the way. But what happened? How's the story in? He comes back, he says, he says, the only thing I can do is go back to daddy and maybe he'll accept me as a servant. And as he's walking back, he, he prepares a speech in his mind that he's going to say, you know, dad, when I get dad... I'm, I'm sorry, please just have me back as a servant. But what happens? You all know how the story ends? The dad sees him from a long way off and he runs out to him and he grabs him and he hugs him. And he, the, the prodigal son came back to an environment that was an environment of compassion, not condemnation. Have we created an environment for our students that, uh, that understands that when they fail, that they can be shown compassion and grace? Or is it an environment that when they fail, condemns and casts out? Here's what I found. In most churches, the environment is one where it's not a safe place to fail. In most churches, it's not a safe place to fail. And that's an unfortunate reality. More often than not, when students fail, they are cast aside, they are condemned, and they are shamed. You don't believe me? Then answer this for me. A 16-year-old girl gets pregnant. That's a moral failure. No one would argue or disagree that that's a moral failure. But how do we treat her? A 17-year-old boy gets caught with drugs. That's a moral failure. Nobody would argue or disagree with that. It's a moral failure. How do we treat them? The truth is, is that we shame them. That 16-year-old girl who got pregnant, you know what isn't going to change anything about what she has already done? Those long, glaring looks of judgment that come past the end of our glasses. What she needs now more than ever before is a place where people will love her and be compassionate toward her. Being compassionate toward someone isn't the same as condoning what they've done. Uh, Jesus was compassionate to the woman who was caught in adultery. He was compassionate to her, but he didn't condone her adultery. He didn't condone her sin. He was compassionate toward the woman. He didn't excuse the consequences. He was compassionate toward her. What that girl needs in that moment is a youth group a support system who will love her despite 
her moral failure. We want to remove her from youth group so that the other girls don't get pregnant as if pregnancy is somehow contagious. Got bad news for you, it doesn't work that way. In all reality, she may be the first girl who got pregnant, but, it, but most likely she's not the only one who's been having sex. So let me ask again, are we creating a safe place for students to fail? Because if the church isn't a safe place for them to fail, they will walk away from the church when they fail. And they will find a new place where they are being accepted in spite of their failure. And if you don't believe me, then just look around. Because they are leaving the church in droves to find places who accept them in spite of their failures. Remember, it's just a phase. They will grow up. And they will become adults. So are we embracing them as toddlers? Are we engaging them as elementary students? Are we affirming them as middle school students? And are we mobilizing them as high school students? Because it's just a phase. And we cannot afford to miss it. The stakes are too high for us to miss it. As church leaders, as a faith community, the stakes are too great. The future of the church is dependent on us not missing it. And so this morning, we're going to offer a chance to respond. And during this time, there are a couple of things that I want you to consider. I want you to consider, are you saying yes to students at every phase? If not, then what do you need to do to say yes? Secondly, are you helping to mobilize students so that they can see the kingdom of God work through them? If not, what can you do to mobilize them? Are you part of creating an environment where it's okay to not be okay? Because here's the reality is that we all need that environment because we're all not okay. We all have our scars from sin. We are all uh, flawed with sin. So we all need a place where it's okay to not be okay. Are we creating that kind of environment? And if, if we're not, then what do we need to do about it? Maybe, maybe you need to repent. Maybe it's a judgmental attitude that has kept people away who are not okay. Today is the day to, to, to repent of that, to start over. Maybe you want to be a part of that kind of envi environment. So maybe today is the day where you step out and you say, I want to be a part of the Glendale Christian Church because today they're saying that they want to be in an environment where it's okay to not be okay and I'm not okay. And if that's you, then, then maybe you would step out and put your membership with us to make that statement of faith that, that you are a part of our body of believers. But lastly, maybe today is the day where you say yes to Jesus. Maybe you were pushed away as a child from the church because of some of the things that we've talked about in this series. Maybe you were the prodigal, and today's the day that you can come back. Or maybe even for the first time, say yes to Jesus, to have your sins washed away. Middle school, high school students, some of you have heard these messages and you sat there and you thought, that's exactly how I feel. But you haven't given your life to Jesus. Today, you can do that. We're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to sing a song. And if you need to respond in any of those, to any of those things that we've talked about, then right now is the moment that you can do that. We're going to stand and I'm going to pray for us and then we'll sing. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we are so incredibly grateful for the opportunity that we have to pour into the next generation of leaders. To leverage their potential, to mobilize them to serve. But Father, oftentimes we haven't done that. And so for that, to, Father, we, we ask your forgiveness. 
Father, I pray that today would be a day where we, uh, 10 years from today, we look back and say that this was a turning point in the life of our church, that this was a point in our church where we said it's going to be okay for people to come who are not okay. For students who mess up, and, and we know that they will, that today's going to be a day where we begin to look at them with compassion and with grace. And that we don't just cast them aside and blame, blame them for, for everything. Yeah, it, a, lot of it, a lot of the things that they do wrong, it is their fault. But Father, help us to learn from the, from the example of Jesus. To not cast aside people who have, who have failed, who have, who have sinned, because Father, that includes all of us. But to be gracious and compassionate to embrace and to affirm and to mobilize. So Father, in this next few moments as we sing, just pray that if, if someone here today needs to, to say yes to you for the first time or for the, the thousandth time, Lord, I pray that they would have the courage to step out and to say yes to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.